Hi there, welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about When the World Becomes Female, Geysers of a South Indian Goddess by Joyce Flickiger. The book is published by Indiana University Press and Joyce is a professor at Emory College. The book is a rich and colourful analysis of the goddess Gangama's festival and her devotees. During this festival, men take on female geysers, whilst women intensify the rituals that they perform to her throughout the year. The book also explores the excess of the goddess and as well as the lives of those who bear her. It really is an absolutely fascinating case. I was completely taken by this book and I had the pleasure of speaking with Joyce just a few minutes before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Joyce to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book and many thanks for coming on. Okay, I'm happy to be here and thank you for this opportunity. Oh, the pleasure is ours. So before we talk about uh, this book itself, Azurning, could you first please tell us briefly about your academic background? Sure. Um, My interest in India really came from having been born and lived there um, until I was 18 I attended an international boarding school in the Himalayas nine months a year and lived in a central Indian Chhattisgarhi village with my parents during our three-month winter vacation. I returned to the U.S. to attend college, where I studied to become a high school teacher. And I had never really considered attending graduate school beyond an M.A. in English uh, until a series of unexpected turns led me to attend the University of Wisconsin's M.A. program in South Asian Studies. I had thought this program would help me put words to intuitions about the cultures uh, and communities in which I had grown up, but I had assumed that I would return then to high school teaching in rural Indiana. But fortunately, my intellectual imagination was caught, and I saw lacuna in the scholarship I was studying that I hoped to fill about women's lives and oral traditions and about rural and low-class and low-caste communities among whom I'd grown up, whose voices at that time in the late 1970s were quite rare in the study of South Asia. And so I continued on to study for the PhD in South Asian languages and literatures at the University of Wisconsin. Um, This is maybe a little too much information, but just to talk about a little bit the serendipity of uh, ethnographic fieldwork. Uh, my original dissertation topic was women's and low-caste Ramayana oral performance traditions in Chhattisgarh. Um, I wanted to look for the possibilities of alternative ideologies that these traditions may carry. So during my year of ethnographic fieldwork, I lived six months in a village on the borders of Chhattisgarh and Arissa, and then moved to a small town five hours away in the Chhattisgarh heartland for the last half of the year. In this time, I recorded lay and professional song and storytelling traditions following the sounds of drums whenever I heard them. And while I heard plenty of Ramayana performances or mention of Ramayana themes and witnessed full dramatic performances of the epic, it became clear to me that this was not the most significant tradition to the communities with whom I was living. And so, you know, this was the day before internet and Skype and, uh, So I didn't consult with my dissertation advisor before I shifted my dissertation topic rather dramatically to analyze those performance traditions uh, about which the communities were most passionate. And those were uniquely Chhattisgarhi oral traditions that created and reflected their regional identities, traditions that distinguished them from 
neighboring regional and pan-Indian traditions. Uh, that work, which resulted in the publication of Gender and Genre and the Folklore of Middle India, analyzes six representative performance genres from a single regional uh, repertoire and lays out the broad parameters of an indigenous conception of genre, one that's based on social categories, that is gender, marital status, caste, or region, rather than categories of form, such as folk, epic, tale, song. Um, in those days, I self-identified as a folklorist. But the shift to be identified as a scholar of religion and ethnographer came in my second project, uh, which resulted in the book Inama's Healing Room, Gender and Vernacular Islam in South India. Uh, this is a, a Muslim female spiritual healer whom her pa uh, patients call Amma. Uh, she lived and practiced uh, in the South Indian city of Hyderabad. Amma's Healing Room represents a level of non-institutionally based Islamic practice that has until very recently been underrepresented in religious studies. So one of the purposes of this book was to bring this level of practice and experience, what I've called vernacular Islam, to the study of Islam. And by writing ethnographically about a particular person and place to remind us that universal Islam, indeed, as are all religions, is lived locally. So the two features of vernacular Islam that are most salient in Amma's worldview, our healing room, <clears throat> are her non-conventional gender role as a healer. That is, she sits in what is traditionally a male ritual uh, space, and the shared worldview and permeable boundaries between religions, Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity, um, of the patients who come to see Amma. And then finally, there's the book we're discussing today, When the World Becomes Female, for which I conducted field work um, in the South Indian pilgrimage town of Tirupati. I'd say it's relatively unusual for an ethnographer to shift field sites between North and South India, shifts that also represent linguistic moves between spoken Chhattisgarhi, Hindi, Urdu, and Telugu, and to have worked in both Hindu and Muslim traditions. I must say that uh, this, these moves were not something I had planned. The first, from Chhattisgarh to Hyderabad, was the result of restrictions put on my postdoctoral research in Chhattisgarh uh, by the government of India. So I had met the Hyderabadi healer with whom I would work over many years when I was teaching a short um, fieldwork method seminar in Hyderabad the year before. Then when I was in Hyderabad working with Amma, I heard about the Gangama festival that is at the heart of when the world becomes female. And first, um, I went to observe it as a total tourist. The next year, I had an opportunity to return to Tirupati when I was in India for some other research. And this time, I started taking a few notes. And I noticed um, some cues that suggested the experience of the goddess and her traditions may be significantly gendered. So before my long-term research, I was able to return to the festival for a third time, this time with a female uh, fieldwork associate, and the seeds of this project were sown. So um, while the content and geographic and cultural locations of my three major research projects have been very different, they do share theoretical interests in indigenous categories and gendered everyday vernacular religion. 
each project has analyzed a repertoire of performance and ritual traditions um, in which I place them in relationship to each other um, as a context that affects how they are received and experienced by their performers and audiences. And this emphasis on repertoire um, is continuing into my new project as well, which I think we'll talk about later. Okay, wonderful. That's a, that's a that's a great introduction. Thank you so much. So, as you mentioned, the the book that we're going to be talking about today is uh, "When the World Becomes Female." This book is about, as you mentioned, the, the goddess uh, Gangama and her festival, which is held in Tirupati in Andhra Pradesh in South India. But uh, before we get into the details of the book, Azuni, could you first give us a, a brief introduction to the place, uh, the goddess's excess, as you call it, and why the world does become female during the festival? Okay, well, I thought it might be helpful um, to listeners to, for me to describe the basic organization of the book first. Sure. Um, the first half of the book analyzes Gangama festival rituals and narrative imaginative worlds um, in which I say gender is debated um, and is key. And this is a world, a gendered world that is underrepresented in scholarship on South Asia. That is the world of uh, lower caste um, artisan castes, uh, that is non-landowning castes um, that have been identified as left-handed castes. So this section of the book also takes up the old question of the relationships between narrative and ritual. Uh, in this case, narrative ambiguity or tension is solved only through ritual, um, and yet the ritual does not depend on the narrative. So that's one uh, contribution um, of this section of the book. And then the second half of the book turns to the personal narratives of families and individuals who are in relationship to this uh, excessive or ugra goddess. Uh, who is so often characterized as unbearable, and yet these families and individuals do bear her. Um, so it analyzes the resources that Gangama ritual and narrative traditions have given these families and individuals, and then the personal losses that they have experienced as these traditions are being silenced or transformed under the pressures of increasingly dominant middle-class, upper-caste aesthetics um, and morality. So now to your question. <laughs> the town uh, in which I conducted the research for this project, Tirupati, uh, is best known for its famous pilgrimage temple of the god Venkateshwara. This temple draws between 50 and 60,000 pilgrims a day and up to 500,000 on festival days. And the temple is also one of the wealthiest in religious institutions in the world. So whenever I say I worked in Tirupati, uh, most of my Indian friends assume I've worked what we call uphill. But there's also a vibrant religious life in the dusty lanes and streets of the town at the bottom of the hill. And one of these is the traditions of the village goddess, or Gramadevata, Gangama. So, in the intense, very hot summer heat of May, Gangama's annual week-long uh, festival, or Jatra, is celebrated. And the Jatra is characterized in the press primarily as one in which, quote, men dress like women. That is, many male participants take female guises, wearing saris, breasts, braids, ornaments. And this is what first drew the colleagues with whom I first attended the festival uh, to Tirupati, uh, one of whom was particularly interested in guising and masking, etc. So as I mentioned, 
Gangama is known as a goddess who is, quote, too much to bear, and very few householders keep her at home, as her needs are really too excessive and demanding to bear on a daily basis. She's called an Ugra goddess. Ugra is usually translated in English academic literature as angry or malevolent or fierce. However, I've chosen to translate the word as excessive in order to more fully account for women's experience of the goddess, um, something that we'll return to in a minute. So Gangama's Ugram, which is the nominal form of Ugra, has the potential to become dangerous if she's left unsatisfied, but it, she's not inherent. Um, this same excess or Ugram is needed for her to protect the inhabitants and lands under her jurisdiction. Um, and this is one of the explicit rationales for Gangama's annual jatra, to call her out of her dark stone temple forms and to build up her ugram sufficiently so that she can protect against hot season illnesses and much needed and bring much needed rains to the paddy fields. Gangama becomes excessive during her jatra in part um, as she expands into various forms outside of her temples. She literally is a ubiquitous presence in the homes and streets of old Tirupati during this week. Um, and then the festival traditions help to create the excess and satisfy it so that it doesn't become destructive. So that is, Gangama is a goddess who protects from illnesses, but may also cause it if she is left unsatisfied. Um, males take female guises in order to fulfill vows they, or usually their mothers on their behalf, have made to Gangama. These usually begin with um, a Gangama-associated illness, such as childhood fevers and smallpox, chickenpox, smallpox in the old days, chickenpox, measles, etc., um, from which they as children recover. Or as adults, they may make vows to ask the goddess for success in school admissions, employment, the health of their businesses, etc., However, many men continue to take these guises after their vow has been fulfilled. And quite literally, Tirupati streets become visually female. So that is, for this one week, women are the unmarked category. They have to change to be in the presence of and experience the power of the goddess. Um, women, on the other hand, already are female and do not take female guises. So I think we'll talk more about this gender difference in guising later. But it is in this sense that I use the phrase, um, when the world becomes female. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's a, that's a great introduction and, and setting out of the, of the book that we're going to explore in the rest of the podcast. Now, you mentioned already a little bit like how you um, ended up studying uh, Gangama. First, you were there as a tourist, as you mentioned. But I was wondering, um, how did you go about doing the research? Okay, well, I, I'll just emphasize that this was a gradual, unexpected, and serendipitous process. Um, like I said, I, I was conducting field work with the Muslim healer I mentioned earlier uh, when I learned that my PhD advisor, uh, Velcheru Narayanarao, and two colleagues from Hebrew University, David Shulman and Don Handelman, were going to attend Gangama Jatra in Tirupati. And the first time, I decided to join them just to learn something new about South Indian Hindu traditions, about which I knew very little. 
uh, but with no expectation at all that this would become a new project. Um, the next summer I was in India again, and they attended again, and I joined them. But this time I was invited to um, a female friend's home for tea, uh, an invitation I was really reluctant to accept, given that we'd been out in the heat following the goddess on her perambulations around Tirupati all morning, and all I really wanted to do was go back to the air-conditioned hotel. But fortunately, I accepted the invitation, and a whole new Jatra world of women's rituals opened up to me. <clears throat> um, there in the kitchen of my friend's home were tiny forms of gangama made of turmeric balls being fed a luscious meal. And in the living room, there was a stainless steel pot marked with turmeric and vermilion filled with a liquid mixture made of millet and yogurt. And this too was the goddess. And I, fortunately, I happened to be there at the time when passerbys stopped at home, uh, doorways of homes and are fed this cooling mixture, which I interpreted to be a distribution and expansion of the goddess herself. Now, these female domestic rituals had never once been mentioned to us on our first visit to Tirupati for the Jatra, nor are they ever mentioned in um, uh, press uh, reports about the festival. And then there were other gendered, uh, there were other cues of a gendered experience and participation in the Jatra. In one conversation with some women and flower sellers at Gangama's largest temple, um, the second year we uh, were attending the Jatra, I asked them where the goddess goes at the end of the festival, reporting that some men had told us she leaves Tirupati and crosses the seven seas. Uh, one of the women responded, she doesn't go anywhere. We feed her pongo, which is uh, cooked rice and lentils mixture, Every Tuesday and Friday, don't we? These are days special to the goddess. Another woman laughed and said, she stays right here. If you have a rock in your backyard, that's Gangama. And I learned that most men interact with Gangama primarily during her jatra, but that women uh, worship her throughout the year. And then another cue was remembering a comment we had overheard on the final morning of the first jatra we attended, when crowds had gathered around a huge uh, clay head of the goddess, which is called an Ugramuki. Uh, these heads are built in front of Gangama's uh, two major temples. And several male participants had told us that this face was so powerful, or Ugra, that no one should look at it until the last minute when it was dismantled. But a young mother standing next to us with a baby on her hip told the baby, look at it, look right at it. So there's another cue of of potential gender difference. Um, and then a couple years later, I was able to return to Tirupati to participate in the festival with a female uh, fieldwork associate. By now, I thought there may be something here that I could pursue as an next project. And on this visit, I recounted to a female sweeper working in the guest house where we were staying, the seeming contradiction between what the men had told us about the Ugramuki and what the woman, young mother had told her baby. So then I asked the sweeper if she was afraid of the goddess, as men seem to be. Her response was immediate and direct. No, she said. That's because she, the goddess, is shakti, or female power, and we, women, have shakti. But men, they're different. They don't have it. So they're afraid. And then she said, it's like we're talking right now, just like two women can talk. So women aren't afraid, but men. Men are different, so they're afraid. Um, 
her response, I thought, suggested that men may feel overwhelmed by female quality and power in the goddess that they don't possess, but which women share with ease. So I knew now there was a project to be pursued. Um, I studied some Telugu. I went back to Tirupati for a year in 1999-2000 and subsequently returned for many several shorter uh, trips during summers and for the Jatra. So I began my research that year uh, by visiting Gangama's two primary temples almost daily, sitting with the flower sellers and talking with ritual specialists who served Gangama. Uh, from there, I began to make contacts and visited the ritual specialists and laywomen in their homes. I also met some professional performers, both male and female, of Gangama narratives and spent time in a nearby village where Gangama is said to have been raised as a human girl and where the festival actually begins. That is, it moves from that village to Tirupati. So I was interested in the beginning uh, in observing and listening to as many different perspectives as I could, professional and lay men and women, each of which ended up reflecting a slightly different experience of Gangama and hence the subtitle of the book, uh, Guises of an Indian Goddess. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, now let's turn to the, the first um, substantive chapter itself. This is about the performance during the Jatra. You term this an aesthetics of excess. So could you please talk us through some of the most important aspects of the performance and tell us in what ways is it excessive? Sure. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I use the word excess in translating ugram. Um, and in this sense, the excess of the jatra is created in part by the multiplicity of forms the goddess takes uh, during the festival, um, the wide range of rituals performed to her, and the multiple sites at which they are performed, and the growing intensity of the goddess's ugram throughout the week. With the multiplicity of rituals comes an overload of ritual material, coconuts and turmeric, vermilion, uh, overflowing pots of pongo cooked by women in temple courtyards, flowers, fruits, neem leaves, goats, chickens. Mm -hmm. And finally, there's an excess of participating bodies, thousands of them by the last day. So the difference between abundance, so typical of many Hindu rituals, and this excess is the potential for the latter to overflow its boundaries. I would say, much like a river in flood. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, the goddess takes numerous forms uh, during her jatra outside of her temples, and she feels quite literally everywhere, in homes and on the streets. One important form of the goddess that I haven't mentioned yet are the guises of Gangama herself, taken by a ritual family from the Kaikala caste. Uh, males of this ritual family take a series of guises enacting Gangama's primary narrative, in which she herself takes guises to pursue and ultimately behead the narrative's aggressive male protagonist. So a different Kaikala uh, male uh, takes a different guise each day of the festival until the beheading. These initial guises then are double guises, that is, they are males becoming the goddess, who herself has taken a series of guises. After the beheading, Gangama, the narrative, appears as her true goddess self, and the Kaikala men, for the last three days, um, take only a single guise, that is, becoming Gangama. These Kaikala guises 
uh, perambulate the streets of what we might call old Tirupati. And each day they cover a wider and wider area and are out for longer and longer. Female householders come out to meet these uh, Gangama uh, guises and worship her. So in this sense, the goddess is coming to her worshippers rather than the worshippers coming to her. So I think to use uh, the aesthetics of excess helps us identify the ritual rationale and performative creativity of the jatra. That is, it is first to elicit and build up Gangama's excess or ukram so that she will be present and powerful enough to protect against threatening hot season illnesses and drought. And then to satisfy that same ukram so that the goddess does not become illness itself. The aesthetics are those of eliciting and satisfying Gangama's ukram and then or one could say balancing uh, heating and cooling the goddess. Um, for example, on the first day of the festival, young children uh, beat Gangama's cement feet uh, that are outside her temple. And we were told this is to heat her, to provoke her, to call her out of her dark uh, stone form inside the temple. But the children beat the feet with cooling neem leaves. As the festival progresses, Gangama becomes more and more expansive, and with her expansion comes expanded hunger that ultimately, I was told, can no longer be satisfied with vegetarian offerings of pongal flowers and fruits. And on the moment of the Jatra, her temple courtyard is filled with family groups offering chickens and a few goats. Traditionally, or earlier, a buffalo sacrifice was made um, but now that has been outlawed, although many festival participants told me that surely somewhere in Tirupati a buffalo was being offered, and it still is in the surrounding villages. Uh, finally, another aspect of excess is that while <clears throat> certain festival rituals are mandatory to achieve certain results, the interpretations of those rituals and the goddesses' narratives are not controlled by any authority. So festival celebrants often gave varying explanations of rituals and narratives in front of someone else who had just said something quite different. And this multiplicity of interpretations really didn't seem to disturb either party. Um, this accepted multiplicity and fluidity of interpretation, differences based on age, gender, and caste uh, itself, I think, helps to create uh, the aesthetics of excess. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank, thank you so much for that. Um, now, I was really taken by the by chapter four, which was analyze the storytelling performance of two village women. Now that you gave us this introduction to your previous academic work, I can see how, how you're so skilled in, 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 uh, in recounting this sort of oral tradition. So I was wondering, could you please tell us a little bit about what this storytelling performance of these two women revealed about the possibility for what you say are gender equal relations? Mm-hmm. Well, like much of field work, uh, this encounter with these female storytellers was serendipitous and changed a working thesis I had been developing, which was that men tended to relate to the goddess primarily narratively, while women related to her primarily ritually. Um, I was thinking this based on the fact that when I asked uh, both men and women about the festival rather generically, men tended to answer 
uh, by telling the story of the goddess that was enacted and embodied by the Kaikala male uh, Vaishams or guises. Um, women, on the other hand, usually answered with descriptions of the rituals they performed. The simplest summary of Gangama's stories, and they often told me I should ask the male professional storytellers who sing her song. However, meeting these two storytellers caused me to adjust that thesis a bit. I was visiting the village where Gangama is said to have been raised, um, looking for the key, the key male ritual organizer of the Jatra there. He wasn't home, but I found his wife and two of her friends sitting on the stoop of their house. Um, they quickly invited me inside, served tea, and then, surprisingly, I guess knowing my interest in Gangama, on their own launched into a performance of two of her primary stories. While following the basic narrative grammars of the stories as I had heard them performed by men, this female performance, with its embedded and often humorous commentary, provided a different interpretation of female desire, ugram, and shakti. The female narratives, both implicitly and explicitly, asserted that fulfillment of desire depends on a full, equal relationship, and not only sex between a man and woman. Uh, I might add that these women are about fourth or fifth grade educated. Further, the women identified with Gangama as a woman who possessed Shakti, like themselves, rather than as an Ugra goddess. Their performance opened up possibilities of gender equality and expressed their own desires for relationship. The women started with the most well-known story of Gangama as she appeared in human form in their own village, uh, Avilala, just outside of Tirupati. This is the narrative in which an aggressive male protagonist wants to uh, marry Gangama, who has taken human form and been raised by um, a ready caste family. In male narrated variants of the story, the protagonist is a local chieftain who wants to have sex with all the beautiful virgins in his territory. And he sees Gangama drying her hair on her rooftop uh, and demands her father uh, from her father that he give her to him in marriage. Now her father knows this isn't a good match uh, and he's really sick with worry, but Gangama tells him that she'll take care of herself, and she agrees to the wedding. So as the couple is rounding the sacred fire during the wedding ceremony, uh, Gangama turns to the chieftain and shows her true self as the goddess, uh, stretching, uh, as the storyteller said, stretching. <laughs> the chieftain runs for his life, and Gangama uh, takes a series of guises, uh, in her chase of him so that uh, he wouldn't recognize her before she found him. Ultimately, uh, she finds him and beheads him. In the female narrated version, the protagonist is a common trader of chickpeas who sees Gangama draw, uh, drawing water from a well and is attracted by her beautiful long braid. In this narration, the female performers emphasize the necessity of equality um, they said, like the wheels of an ox cart, they, in order to move forward, they should be equal. The problem, the narrative problem in this version was less the explicit sexual aggression of the protagonist than the fact that he was not her equal and that his intentions were not, quote, good. That is, he saw only her external beauty, 
but not her inner self, the, the storytellers told me. In this version, when Gungama shows her true self during the wedding, she taunts the traitor protagonist, asking him how he could even think that he could bear her. After all, she, she asks him, where are you? And the storytellers pointed to the earth. And where am I? They pointed to the sky. So without equality, uh, they asserted, there is no possibility of relationship. Uh, one of the storytellers concluded that a person must have shakti or power to bear another person. Otherwise, there won't be relationship. The relationship between a man and a woman is only possible if they can bear each other's shakti. <coughs> the second woman elaborated that the protagonist saw only Gangama's external beauty, but he didn't see her inner qualities, saying men are the one who need to learn about the nature of the heart or inner self. Manas is the word she used. Then the second narrative performed by the women is also the one performed by male rituals uh, performers at a particular point in the sequence of the festival uh, when they sing to Gangama as their primary audience, perhaps to remind her of who she truly is, um, that is, the ultimate goddess and not a human daughter. In this story, Gangama is identified with the goddess named Adiparashakti, that is literally the primordial goddess. So the story goes that Adiparashakti was all alone in the world, that is before the creation of humans and other living things on earth. Uh, when she reached puberty, she experienced desire, uh, sexual desire, or korika. So she decided to create a male. Created was the god Brahma. And the first word out of his mouth was Amma, or mother. So this precluded him as a sexual partner. The second male was the god Vishnu. And similarly, the first word he spoke was Amma. He too was precluded. She turned both gods into ashes. Then she created the god Shiva. And the first word out of his mouth was Emi, a pronoun husbands use to address their wives in Telugu. So he was a possibility. But recognizing the goddess was more powerful than him, Shiva set three conditions before he would fulfill her desire. He wanted her third eye, her drum, and her trident. And she gave these to him, willingly, the women said. As she gave each item, her power decreased, and the women say she sunk further and further into the earth. Only now he would be able to bear her. But once he had these items, he still refused to satisfy her. And here, the women's performance digressed into a discussion of women's superior shakti. Ultimately, Shiva asked that the goddess bring uh, Rama and Vishnu back to life. Then he promised he would marry her. But wait, there was another condition. She only had one form, and there were three males. So he said she should divide herself into the three goddesses who are now recognized as these three gods' consorts. Other versions say she divided herself into four parts, and the fourth part became the hundreds of unmarried village goddesses whose sexual desire, or korika, is satisfied only with animal sacrifice. So one could interpret this basic narrative as one in which male power is dominant, uh, with Shiva having cheated the goddess and usurped her power. But these female performers seem to emphasize the agency of the goddess herself that she willingly gave up some of her shakti in order that there be a possibility of equality in her relationship with Shiva. 
maintaining that a relationship of equals is satisfying and ultimately only a relationship of equals is satisfying and ultimately sustainable. Absolutely wonderful. It's, it's such a such fascinating uh, account. Um, now let's uh, shift our attention to the to the second part of the book and those who you say bear the goddess. These are the families who have some sort of kinship relations with with the goddess throughout the year, not just during the festival. So in chapter seven and eight, you discuss two families and their relation to Gangama. So could you please tell us a little bit more about these relations? Yeah. Uh, One of these families um, who bears uh, the goddess, and just to remind us that the goddess is usually identified as someone that we can't bear on a daily basis, um, claims Gangama as a daughter. Um, <clears throat> this is the Reddy caste family that sponsors and organizes the Jatra in the village of Avilala, where Gangama was raised. Uh, they say that she was found by their ancestors. That is, maybe great-great-great-grandparents in our living time, um, as a little baby abandoned in a dry paddy field. And it is in this village where the aggressive protagonist of her primary narrative sees her and insists on marrying her a desire thwarted when she shows her divine self and chases and beheads him. Uh, This family emphasizes that she's a daughter of this very place, our family, this village. But of course, since she is the goddess, she's outlived any of the ancestors who raised her um, and is still considered a daughter of the family and by extension, the village itself. I think the village and the family has the confidence that they can bear this Ukra goddess in part because she is a daughter to whose needs they are sensitive and with whom they have intimate familial relationships. Gangama regularly appears through dreams um, to the Reddy male who organizes the festival uh, and she makes her wishes known. She also regularly possesses him and speaks through him um, and villagers come to him slash her Uh, for various needs and healing. His wife, too, becomes possessed. Um, She says even if she hears the name Gangama, she becomes possessed. And this is something she doesn't want to have happen unless there are ritual kind of parameters. Uh, And so she's very reluctant to ever talk about the goddess. The second family of the uh, Tamil Mudaliyar caste Uh, who has an intimate relationship with the goddess, is one that uh, relates to her primarily ritually rather than narratively. I found this very interesting because I think usually when we approach uh, new deities in uh, our studies uh, in Hinduism, we ask for the stories. Uh, But this family uh, talked much more about their ritual relationship rather than Gangama's narrative. Um, they told me that their ancestors came from what was then known as Madras to Tirupati on pilgrimage to the temple of the great god on the mountain. And on the way, they camped downhill under a tree where they saw the head of a goddess, stone head of a goddess, thrown carelessly under a tree. They asked a passerby who she was, and he identified her as Gangama, whose power could protect against disease. Um, at the t- uh, the Medellin family set the goddess upright and worshipped her, asking her to heal their sick child. When the child recovered, they decided to stay in Tirupati to serve her and not return to Madras. They built 
a temporary protective structure over her image, uh, gradually expanded into the temple that stands today. Interestingly, she's served by the women of the family um, through successive generations. Uh, the matriarch who was serving Gangama in her largest temple when we first visited Tirupati, as I mentioned earlier, knew very little of her narrative tradition. But she's come to know Gangama through intimate ritual service of her, including applying a turmeric uh, masking cover uh, over her dark stone face, adorning her in saris of her favorite colors, feeding her, and sensing her moods and desires. The Medellia family is also one of only a few who serve Gangama at home in the form of a tiny silver image. Wonderful, thank you. Um, I'm going to have to skip over a few of the more interesting chapters also in the second half of the book with, with one eye on the, on the, on the time. But, uh, so I'd like to talk about chapter 10, which is another chapter which I, which I really loved. And this is a, a narrative of a single female devotee. Um, now, after you've read this chapter, which is which is quite an intense chapter to read because it's about quite an intense individual, you you come to agree with the assertion that that she is crazy for the goddess, which is what people say about her uh, in Tirupati. So, could you please tell us a little bit more, more about this individual and about her level of devotion? Yes, this was really the most difficult chapter to write and difficult to decide whether or not to include it in the book. Um, <clears throat> the other personal and narr family narratives in the second part of the book um, narrate uh, the benefits of being in a close relationship with the goddess, like there are success stories in a way. Uh, the goddess seemed to empower the women of these families um, who were able to bear her. But this narrative of a woman who described herself as crazy for the goddess, the Telugu word is pitchy, uh, suggests that there may be times when an intimate relationship with Gangaba may, in fact, be too much to bear, as many Gangaba worshippers had told me many times, but which I hadn't really experienced. Um, I met this uh, female <clears throat> householder in the Kaikala courtyard at a heightened ritual moment when the Kaikala Gangaba Vesham in which Gangama has fully revealed herself as the goddess and is at her most powerful, had returned home from her perambulations. <clears throat> Here in the Kaikala courtyard, that Vesham form of Gangama was possessed by herself in front of still another form of herself, that is the murti or image that had been set up in the courtyard. The goddess's presence at this moment was particularly intensified. So in the crowd, there was a woman who immediately caught my eye. She stood out by her large vermilion forehead marker and swaths of sandal paste across her forehead, indications of heightened religiosity. But her eyes caught me too. They were wide and bright. And her manic speech was often addressed to no one in particular. As soon as she noticed my fieldwork associate and me, she came over to introduce herself. And the first thing she said was, I'm someone who is crazy or pitchy for the goddess. And she invited us to come home with her, where, she said, she had notebooks in which her daughter had written down both Gangama's story and that of her mother. The woman told us that she goes around from Gangama Temple to Gangama Temple, and her brother accuses her of wandering around like a madwoman. 
One of the rituals she performs at the ritual at the temples each day is anga pradakshina, that is circumambulation around the temple by rolling the fully prostrated body over and over. Her manic speech quickly shifted from subject to subject and back again, making it really difficult to follow. Not only that, at the time, my Telugu was really rudimentary. And others in the ritual audience seemed to avoid her. My fieldwork assistant was not keen on accepting her invitation home, and so we didn't go. But I was later able to visit her several times. She had brought Gangama home. And once there, the goddess demanded, according to the woman herself, full-time service, both at home and in the temple. Her daughter, too, was bound in this devotional relationship with the Ugra goddess. While she invited me to come home to hear her full story, when I got there, she told me the goddess had not given her permission to tell it. Um, and she seemed caught in suspension between a compulsion to talk and the song Gangama seemed to have, I later heard this story, however, much of it. Um, Gangama seemed to have two kinds of demands, ritual service and to be made known publicly by her devotee. Um, the devotee should tell her story, which included narrations of dreams and visions of the goddess in which Gangama came directly to her, with humility and not pride. The balance is precarious. And the devotee told me at times she had overstepped this line of humility, and the goddess silenced her quite literally, one time preventing speech itself, and another causing boils to appear all over her body. But the devotee assured me that this relationship with Gangama is reciprocal. The devotee who serves her with full obedience can also depend on her uh, to come to her the devotee when Gangama is called. Uh, gradually over a few visits, I heard her heartbreaking story of what it meant to follow the goddess's commands to the point, the point of being crazy or mad in her persistence and the familial and societal rejection for doing so. The last time I met the woman, her daughter had just died uh, days before. Uh, this is the daughter who is also a devotee of Gangama and who has written books and books of songs to her. Um, she told us that the god daughter had been persecuted in her marital home and ultimately rejected by her father-in-law, who, by the way, was her uncle. This is uh, cross-cousin marriage per permitted in South India. Uh, her father-in-law sent her back to the marital home, saying that uh, the daughter's spiritual power and connection to Gangama was interfering with his own magical uh, and ritual practices. Daughter in humiliation, had ultimately starved herself to death, not eating for 40 days. And the day before she died, she had taken burning embers in her hand and pronounced that she would die the next day. So her mother described neighbors and family members falling at the feet of the corpse as it was being carried to the cremation ground. Several times in the narration of her daughter's death, uh, the woman interjected with something like, I'm feeling so pitchy or mad or crazy. Um, and my fieldwork associate in particular, who uh, was new to possession um, traditions, uh, was really afraid that uh, she would be possessed. It's unclear whether this devotee was in some way pitchy or mad to begin with, or 
um, and that the nature of this madness was transformed through relationship with Gangama, or whether she was drawn into a relationship with the goddess because of difficulties in her life, and once in that relationship became more pitchy or mad. We can't really know her what her life would have been like without the goddess, whether she would have been more or less stable, more or less socially acceptable. Um, but I think what we can say is that the protection of this Ugra goddess and the all-consuming relationship with her had come at a cost, physically and emotionally. But the relationship also gave a cultural context for her madness. Even as she was derided by others, they accepted her. I decided to include this painful narrative, fragmented as it was in both form and content, as I think only through hearing it, I began to understand on an experiential level how the Ugra goddess Gangama can, in fact, be too much to bear. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really is, a, yeah, I suppose, difficult to read, but also yeah, really fascinating. It draws you in, so I'm glad you did decide to uh, keep it in the book. Now, uh, in the last sort of 45 minutes or so, we've shot through the book quite quickly, and I know we've had a chance to talk about all of the chapters. So I was wondering if there's anything that I've missed that you'd like to highlight for those who have not yet had the chance to read the book. Well, I guess uh, one thing we didn't talk uh, very much about are uh, the guising tradition um, outside of uh, those taken by the Kaikala male ritual specialists um, and what effect they have. Um, when we were told about guising, uh, initially it was always about men who take uh, strivesham or female guising um, in response to a vow that they had made to the goddess or often uh, for simple enjoyment. Um, I, I would always ask, well, why this particular form of vowing to the goddess? Like, what is it about female guys that the goddess would want. Um, One man told me that, uh, you know, when you're in front of the goddess as her most powerful, you should appear before her as a woman. But the impact of that guising, uh, I only really began to understand from an indigenous point of view when I met um, a Brahmin male employee of the uh, temple committee that runs the big temple uphill. Um, and we were talking about something else altogether uh, when he interjected in English and said, Madam, I think you would be interested to know that I have taken strivesham or female guising every year for the last 35 years. And I said, uh, yep, I'd be interested to know that because I really <laughs> assumed that Brahmins didn't directly participate in this uh, lower caste festival. Um, and he recounted that he... Um, had been ill as a child or sickly, uh, kind of chronically, and that his mother had made a vow to Gangama that if he regained his strength and health, he would take a strivesham during the festival, which he did at about the age of eight or nine. But then his grandmother told him that he should uh, continue taking vesham uh, once a year. Uh, She said, and he reported this in English, that once a year, by taking Vesham, you can get a corner on women's Shakti. Now, the term corner in English is a little ambiguous, or how he used it. But I assumed it meant um, you could get a small 
experience only a small piece of uh, female shakti, or if we think of guising as revelatory, not only disguising, uh, then by taking female guise, you could experience that small part of masculinity that is female. Um, and so I interpreted uh, female guising as really transforming uh, masculinity, um, not really making men women. Uh, women, on the other hand, um, are, of course, already women. Um, and so when I was trying to verify uh, once what, um, you know, that Kaikala women did not or could not take uh, the Gangamas guises, one of the women said, well, we do. We put turmeric on our faces every Tuesday and Friday. So that led me to think of turmeric as a guise. And in this case, it was a guise um, that affirmed women's shared identity um, and power, shakti, uh, with the goddess. So that's a, a kind of piece that goes uh, throughout the book, what uh, guising uh, can create. Wonderful. Thank, thanks. Thanks so much for that. I mean, uh, so to say to the people at home that haven't yet had a chance to read the book, there are so many wonderful stories and uh, rituals described in the book that obviously we haven't had a chance to discuss today. And it really is a it really is a rich, really, really rich read. And so I'd like to recommend it to people on, on, on many different levels. But uh, now that we've talked about this book and now this book is out, I was wondering what are your current and future projects? Well, um, I've just uh, completed a textbook that came out last, um, I mean, I completed it a while ago, but it was uh, published last month titled um, Everyday Hinduism, which offers uh, an ethnographic perspective on ethnographic Hindu ritual and narrative practices. Um, and each chapter includes my own ethnographic materials drawn from fieldwork in Chhattisgarh, Hyderabad, and Tirupati, uh, including Gangama. Um, I've had this last academic year off to pursue research and begin writing a book whose uh, working title is Material Acts, the Agency of Materiality in India. This is a new turn for me because I kind of know what to do with narratives and rituals, but I hadn't really um, uh, materiality in the practices that I had studied, except for uh, guising. So this book follows the emphasis of my earlier books on repertoire and indigenous categories. And by analyzing specific rituals and uses of materiality, I'm proposing that Indians and Hindus more specifically, although it also applies to uh, many Indian Christians and Muslims, uh, that they understand materiality to exert agency independent of human agency behind its use. So I'm using agency here as the capacity to act or to change the world without implying intention behind that capacity. And, you know, that's a long discussion. What is agency? Um, the title of the book, Material Acts, uh, plays off of linguist J.L. Austin's term speech acts, uh, which are utterances that do something rather than simply convey information. So my assumption shared with performance study scholars regarding ritual and narrative performance is that materiality does not simply reflect pre-existing ideologies and identities, but that its different forms uh, create meaning, identity, theology, and transformation. 
um, they do something. So I analyze uh, five forms of materiality. The first three are readily accepted by those I worked with as agentive, uh, that is ornaments, gold and tattoos specifically, guising, taken from the book we've just discussed, and ritual materials such as turmeric and vermilion. Uh, then I look at two other forms of materiality through this, what I would call indigenous perspective, to ask what these materials create that might be quite different from human intentions of those who have created or used them. Uh, and these include large cement images of the protagonist Ravana from the epic of the Ramayana, images that are unique to Chhattisgarh, and new cement enclosures built around Gramadevata shrines that are ubiquitous in the city of Hyderabad. The uh, Ravana images stand outside of temples and are not worshipped per se, but they have the potential to create alternative theologies and narratives to those found in the uh, verbal epic. And the newly built permanent shrines of Gramadevatas are reshaping both the urban landscape and gradually changing the nature of the goddess herself who's housed inside. So I'm about three quarters through um, that project. Look, it sounds fascinating. They both, both of these projects sound, yeah, sound, sound really wonderful. So thanks for telling us about those. Um, there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you very much again for coming on the show and thank you again for your wonderful book. Okay, thanks a lot for uh, including me in this series. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about When the World Becomes Female, Guises of a South Indian Goddess by Joyce Fleekiger. This is a great book and I hope you enjoyed listening to the show. Bye.